Anyone who has been around children knows that learning starts well before school. On today's show, we'll explore ways to ensure that we are supporting learners from birth onward. Hello and welcome to episode five of the Education for a Better World podcast. I'm Mike Soskal. And I'm Diane Smokorowski. Each week, we will bring you conversations with some of the most dynamic thought leaders in education. This week's episode is sponsored by GoToScience, a tool that allows our youngest learners the opportunity to learn by going on adventures without leaving their classroom. We know that education will be the driving force for a bright, optimistic future. On each show, we'll introduce you to innovative ideas, we'll stretch your thinking, and help you see ways to empower students to affect positive change in the world. We are thrilled that you are coming along with us on this journey. Let's dream big. Alexandra Harper has been working in early childhood education for over 25 years. She's taught in a parent-run alternate school, an independent school, and in public schools. For her outstanding work, she was named one of the top 50 teachers in the world by the Global Teacher Prize in 2015. Alexandra, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be with you and Diane. And good, uh, good morning to you. Yes, it's morning over here in Sydney, Australia. It's, um, it's a bit cloudy and overcast, but I'm sure it'll fine up to a nice spring day. Lovely. Well, we're excited to have you with us and hear more about your story. Sure. Happy to share. Alexandra, can you start by telling us why early childhood education is so important? Absolutely. Um, my, my journey in education actually started in primary. So I'm qualified to teach five-year-olds to 12-year-olds. But early on in my career, when I was teaching in a parent-run school, Kima in Sydney, it had a preschool attached to it. Um, so I got to see the younger children and the sophistication of the learning that was happening there. And at the same time, an academic from one of the universities here in Sydney, the Institute of Early Childhood Macquarie University, Alma Fleet, came and um, visited my classroom because I was teaching a composite class, K to two, so that's five to eight-year-olds in, in my room, to come and see what was happening there in terms of literacy. And so that sparked my interest in what, what is happening in this space of birth to eight. Um, and children aren't coming to school empty vessels. They're coming with a wealth of experience, knowledge, insights and understanding. So that's where it led to my journey of looking at what is happening there in this early childhood space. And the more I looked into it, the more profound I saw um, what was happening there. From children from when they're born, there is this thirst and desire to learn. We are born, born wanting to know how our world works and what our place is in it. And also driving from those early days is that desire to interact and relate to other human beings in a really positive way manner and that's the importance of the adult child interaction from those really early days and there's research now saying about how important those first five uh, those first 1000 days are of a child's life in laying the foundation for not only in education but for health outcomes potential income 
and also, you know, their crime rates, all of those sorts of things, which has led to a variety of interests from the World Bank to the OECD to the Heckman Institute. There's a very strong interest in early childhood. So it's really important that we get the best educators that we can working in this space because obviously children um, can't communicate as uh, in in the ways that we traditionally understand in education. So particularly teachers who are working with babies, they've got to know the language of babies to be able to respond and extend and um, make the experiences that they're having a rich. And I truly believe if we can get early childhood education as strong as it can be, we will lay the strongest foundations to set children not only on exciting and exceptional educational outcomes, but actually set them on positive lifelong trajectories, which is really important, which is my other passion, which is well-being. So it's early childhood, you know, has getting that right and supporting children to be their best um, by having the best teachers we can in that space we can have profound short-term and long-term impacts. So I don't think I can overstate the importance of early childhood education, and that's why I've moved into that space. I love your passion. And my question for you is, I, I'm very fascinated by the idea of this forestry kindergarten, or the idea sure. of children being outside. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so part of um, my interest also is in well-being and linked with that is how we can provide opportunities for children uh, that foster positive well-being. And that led to my interest in looking into the forest school movement, which started in Scandinavia but is taking off across the world. And um, in 2015, I was very fortunate that I could go and visit different ways at the forest school process um, is or theory is implemented and so I got to see it that in its pure sense which is where you take children out into a natural space and it's the same space that they visit every time and the children engage in playful in a playful but also thoughtful manner with the environment so they go out there and you're seeing children um, when I've taken children out, we call it bush over here in Sydney. So when I set up bush school for five-year-olds, we'd take them out. And you'd see children interacting. For some children who just wanted mindfulness, they'd just sit there and look at the water or sit there and just watch the leaves blowing in the wind. To some children who were saying, right, my challenge for this moment is I'm going to learn to jump from that rock to this rock. So you would see their persistence, their resilience. Um, and then you'd see children climbing trees. We don't, um, and you'd have the range of children who are used to being in natural environments to some children who had never been in nature before. So the idea of picking up a rock and throwing it, they were asking, am I allowed to do it? And you talk through all the safety aspects um, with them that they would engage in those activities. So it's child-led child-directed, child-paced, um, but you have the na nature as the third or the other teacher for the children. So the children are teaching each other 
the adult is there as a facilitator, you guide, you don't tell the children how to interact, you're supporting them. Um, and also nature is there as a guide as well. And so every time they visit, um, it can be different. So they learn this nuanced understanding of how nature works, which benefits them in their understanding of sustainability and how to respect and engage with, with Mother Earth. For our, in our Australian context, it gave them an insight and a desire to know about the Indigenous or the Australian Aboriginal connection with the Earth. So then they got an understanding of that. And all those skills that they learned with resilience, trying again, um, learning that mistakes are learning opportunities. Um, they translate back into the classroom. So then it um, empowers their academic learning. And the other thing um, my takeaway from the forest school movement is you get some children whose school is a real struggle and they don't see themselves succeeding. But then you take them out into this natural environment and they thrive and they become the leaders. And children see those other children with a different insight and a different light. Um, and then when they go back to school, they have a stronger sense of self, which allows them to really take risks in their learning and see their potentiality. So um, there's so much I could say about the forest school movement. I think it's just been a wonderful thing. And anybody knows if you go for a walk out in, in nature, you just feel so much better for doing it. I sort of call it the power of vitamin N. So yeah, that's, um, it's, that's been a recent discovery in my educational journey, but it's been a wonderful one. Uh, and introducing that and taking parents and children on that journey and, and being supported by parents to go on that journey has been a, a very exciting and very rewarding. Tell us a little more about that journey. How, how did Alexandra Harper, the teacher, change from your first year of teaching to uh, more recently? Okay. I was very fortunate that the first school that I taught in was a parent-run alternative school. So I was in some ways oblivious to um, the constrictions that you could have. I was given a blank sheet of paper and said, go for it. So very much it was I, I would look do um, look what the children were interested in. I think that was, I was very fortunate that I was given that gift early on, that I um, would see where the children were interested, what they were passionate about, and then I would design and adapt the curriculum to fit, to fit that. I was also very fortunate that I had a lot of parent support. So if the children were interested in something and we thought, well, next day we want to go on a field trip out to explore it, I'd just get on the phone and the parents would come with us. I mean, these were the days I've been teaching a long time where I look back at it and I think, oh my goodness, how could I do it? Where I just go, all right, kids, we want to go for a swim in the surf in the beach. And we go, yay, off we'd go. Um, you know, no real permission forms or anything. And I've been out there in the ocean with, you know, 20 odd children swimming in surf. I look back on it now and I think, oh my goodness. So there's been a lot of changes in legislation since then. But I think what I learned in those foundation years was what is my philosophy? What do I believe in? And always looking to think where is the child in any decision I was making? And I think I carried that through um, as I've gone through in my 
um, teaching and my career. So when I moved um, into the public system, which had different um, opportunities and challenges, um, I still took with me that um, desire to adapt the curriculum to the children. And um, I remember the biggest compliment, another child, it was a sibling of one of the children in my class, and they said, Mrs Harper's a bit unusual, isn't she? And um, they were saying it to another teacher, and the teacher said, what makes you say that? And this child said, I don't think she teaches for the, from the curriculum. And I suppose what that child would see was a boy who was interested in um, billy carts and finding out his grandfather knew how to build them. We built a billy cart and we'd be going around the playground in the school doing billy carts. Um, you know, just things that children were interested in, you know, when they would hear news stories about children um, playing on train tracks and then you'd unpack that issue, what's ha happening there, and then the children would discuss you know, whose responsibility and you'd end up into philosophical discussions for what is the position of children in society. Um, and then, you know, which was very exciting. And at that same time, I also discovered the creative arts and the power of drama. And I did a lot of drama with um, children. Some would say I'm a bit dramatic myself, but anyway, that's another story. Um, and then I moved into leadership positions where you shift from um, not only looking at the children and the potential there, but the potential of the teachers you are working with. So in essence, they become your class, that you're looking at their strengths, areas that they can grow, um, opportunities that you can provide for them, which of course flow on to the effects um, for children. And then when in my last um, school-based position, um, where I was the leadership position there, I was given lots of opportunities to just take scope and explore different things. So that's when I got to play around with forest school and introducing bush school. And I also got to have profound discussions with the staff about where we are, where we were going, and also how the politics interplay with the choices we have as teachers. I always tell people that I love a good rogue teacher, somebody who's just <laughs> a little bit willing to be taking risks and innovate with students. And it sounds, this is a true rogue teacher at heart, Mike, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny because I would not see myself as a rogue teacher. I just went in and I'd just always say, where is the child in this decision? How can I make myself my best so I can be the best for the children so they can be their best? Um, yeah. I think if you find, if, if you look at any teacher that is doing really great things for kids, they're breaking rules along the way. It's just, it's just what excellent teachers do. Um, those that are following their textbook manuals and doing exactly what they're told and passing out the same worksheet every year, you know, they're not doing anything exceptional. That's the, that's the bare minimum. I think when you, when you look at teachers that are doing great things, there are always boundaries that are being pushed. And I think Alex exemplifies that so well. Oh, thank you. I think it's also been fortunate of the people that you're working with at that point in time and who is leading the school that you're working in that give you the parameters to do that. So some uh, some teachers mightn't be having that opportunity that they, you know, and there is that feeling global wide of the increasing pressure for constraints, you know, as we live in this high stakes testing environment and the impact that that's having. So um, I think, you know, I just think I've been lucky at different points in time to have been where I've been, you know, so.
Before we continue the show, we'd like to take a few seconds to share with you the sponsor that's made this episode possible. If you've listened to the show before, you know how much Diane and I love GoToScience. It's now time to give away our free subscription to GoToScience for December. Congratulations to Livingston Kagode from the Hip Africa Academy in Kimalili, Kenya, who tweeted a great quote from Ada McKim on episode one. We know that your students will love learning with GoToScience. Children that learn by going on adventures with Beth and Curtis, conducting experiments, and leading their own investigations are not just learning science. They're being scientists, and they're learning literacy, numeracy, and communication skills along the way. This is why we're excited to announce that we will be giving away another year-long subscription to GoToScience to a lucky listener. Here's how to win. Between now and February 1st, subscribe to the Education for a Better World podcast on either iTunes or Google Play. Then tag us and GoToScience in a tweet. And then share with us why you want a free GoToScience subscription. Then in early February, we'll choose at random someone and give them a one-year subscription to go to science. It's that easy. Good luck. You know that Diane and I are really passionate about helping students and teachers create amazing learning experiences in school. We've worked with educators around the globe to elevate their teaching and to innovate in their classrooms. That's why we've created a brand new workshop that will empower your teachers to help students learn more. By more, we mean that the learning will be motivating, organic, relevant, and experiential. We will help teachers find easy to implement strategies for making learning come alive in their classrooms so that students love learning, know how to apply it to the world outside school, and remember what they learned. No matter what age or content area you teach, the Learn More philosophy and the strategies we'll share will help your teachers connect incredible learning experiences to their curriculum. Students will be engaged in learning like never before. To send us an inquiry about our Learn More workshops or any of the other keynote or workshop offerings that Diane and I can provide, visit the podcast website at edforbetterworld.com. We hope to see you in person soon. Now let's return to the show. Let's get a little wonky for a second, Alex. Okay. Let's talk policy. How can, okay. we get, how can we get more excellent teachers into that early childhood space? Ah, so I think, you know, they're saying teachers have, uh, you know, have an issue with not being respected in society at large, and that's a global phenomenon from what I can read. I know you guys in the States are having that issue the same we are here in Australia. So if we think about that in the school space, amplify that in the prior to school space because even within teachers themselves there is stratification and difference in how teachers are respected so um, early childhood teachers seem to even have less respect unjustified in my opinion than school teachers because early childhood education sometimes has this opinion that it's not real education and children are just playing um, and so I think what we need to do is when we're looking at education, consider it as a birth. Education starts at birth. It doesn't just start when you're at school. Um, so I think we need to reframe the narrative about what is education. Saying that, I say it with a bit of caution because I know the potential of young children and there is so much they can do. Yes, 
we can get them reading earlier, you know, prior to school, but we don't want that pushed down. We don't want um, childhood denied. There is, you know, we want that prior to school space to be valuable and a really rich experience for those young children. And it doesn't mean starting, you know, the traditional notion of education earlier. It's looking at what the strengths are of what is happening in early childhood, amplifying those, and also identifying areas for improvement. Because um, in terms of recruiting teachers into the early childhood space, there seems to be, from what I can read, um, differing approaches around the world and maybe the um, approaches are not as rigorous as they are for school, school teachers. So I think we've got to look at that, how we're attracting and how we're um, retaining teachers in those spaces. It's the same issues in, in school teachers. Um, and I think... Also, as teachers, we've got to get better at telling our stories, making visible what's happening when we're working with children. And I think that's particularly important in early childhood where people think they understand and know what adults are doing when they're working um, with young children, but uh, there's such a sophistication there unless it's unpacked and talked through um, you can't see what you not you don't know what you're looking for. So I think in terms of the early childhood sector, we need to um, amplify and be much more clear in how we're communicating exactly what's happening because there is that perception that children are just playing and the teachers just sit around in the background. Um, and I think we've got to get better at communicating the art and science of teacher the teaching that's happening in that space. I could not agree more. I think that that's definitely something that we need every teacher to do is be willing to tell your story. Yeah. And if that doesn't feel comfortable, tell about the teacher next door story. Yeah. Tell about yours. If the more we share, the more that we're changing perceptions about what's happening in school. Yeah. One thing you brought up is with the forestry school or the bush school is this idea of children getting the N vitamin, the, the ability to be with nature. And I've seen a lot of the research going with this idea along with purposeful play. Can yep. you kind of speak to purposeful play for me? Okay. I think part of the challenge in early childhood is this word play because it can mean so many different things. And I was actually hearing Parsi Salberg talk uh, the other day and he said in Finland there's three words for play. And I think, oh, that's a really interesting thing. Workers, I'll probably get it wrong, paraphrase him incorrectly, but play is in what we traditionally think of as play, but then there's work play and there, there was another definition of play. And I thought, oh, that's a really good thing because adults, when we hear the word play, we think of one, you know, just go out and play. And I think because it was so enjoyable, we haven't really realised the learning that was going on within that. So purposeful play um, is when children are engaging in an experience. And as I said earlier, there is this desire to learn, you know, it is something you know, the, the children who are always saying, but why, but why, you know, tell me, we want to know, why is the moon following me? How is a spider web or how does a spider, is it held up by a spider web? How is a spider web that strong? All these profound questions that they're having. 
um, that they're engaging in. And I suppose one of the things that I really love about play, and one example that I always give is block play. Um, I just have a passion for children engaging in block play because when you look at when you look at children. And just at surface level, you just see children getting together and they're just building something, it falls down and they build it again. But if we take a step back and actually look at what's happening, we've got a group of children coming together. Now, it could be because it's friendship-based or it could be because they're interested in the activity taking place. So there's all those social um, skills that children are negotiating, turn-taking, what's happening, uh, you've got the block I want, I want the block, you're not doing what I want, and that internalisation, how am I going to solve that? You know, am I going to throw the block at that child because I'm really angry at them or do I use my language? You know, all of those. So that's the social and emotional side there. Then if you're looking at what they're doing when they're building, there are so many mathematical concepts happening there. So 2D, 3D space, the interchange between that. And teachers can extend that by having a piece of paper where children are recording their thinking. And so they're going, oh, how do you record a 3D object in a 2D space? And then they come up with their ways of doing that. And it can be multiple different ways. Each child could do that differently, but that's okay. There's different ways that you can do that. Then if you've spent hours building this block construction and it is fantastic and you're just so excited about it and then it falls down you know that whole resilience you know um, how do you cope with disappointment what do you do and their skills that children are learning where you know life is not always perfect things happen that are out of your control those skills that children are learning there in that in that block play so um, that's just one little snippet or insight um, but something that might be simple that's happening, perceived that's simple that's happening in the corner of a, of a room or, you know, even in someone's home, there is such sophistication happening there at, at an intellectual level. The language that children are using to communicate, how do you, you know, positional language, that mathematical language there, but also the language of how you negotiate with other people, um, how you talk to them, even when they're starting off in block play, what you're deciding to build, that whole negotiation, you know? Um, and then you can go into talking about, well, the whole thing of the gender issues, you know, um, where, you know, some, you might get some little boys who come in and say, well, girls can't play with blocks. It's not a girl's game. And then the girls will say, well, I can play with blocks. So there can be these other um, really profound discussions that are going on. So it's taking that time. Um, and I'd, I'd ask you and, and, and Mike and anybody else listening, next time you see children playing, just give yourself the gift of just sitting and just observing and really thinking what is happening in that situation. And then you'll just get an insight into the world of early childhood and I'm sure you'll fall in love with it as much as me. It's just, it's such an exciting space. Um, and you realise how awesome human beings human beings are when you think we're born with these skills um, we're born with this potentiality and I think as adults it's our responsibility to ensure each and every child in on this planet has the opportunity to have the best life they can and that starts in early childhood in those playful moments um, 
And the skill of the teacher then is when you're um, working with children during play, when do you stand back and do your observations and keep records and think, okay, to extend this play, I might add this to it tomorrow. Um, or when you, use, you, you see an intentional teaching moment so you can come in and support a, support a child. And that can be in any space, the intellectual space, the social space or the emotional space. You see those teachable moments and then you engage there. Um, and sometimes it's asking permission of the children, can you engage in their play? Um, and also respecting their right to have... And um, I, I think sometimes, you know, when I was growing up, you weren't under adult surveillance as much, where children are under all this constant surveillance. Give children that time where they can engage in experiences without the gaze of adults and without feeling everything has to be documented. But what I mean by that is photographed, recorded. Just let them have that experience for what it is at that moment in time. I know that you're passionate about student voice and ensuring yes. that student voices are heard in the educational process and, and in the environment where they're learning. Some of the pushback on that is often that kids don't know what's best for them at those ages. How would you respond to someone that would bring that up? Yeah, it's a, it's a, in some ways that is a, a, a valid point and I think where we're at now whereas probably my younger self would have pushed back really on that I think we've got to respect and listen to people who have these these points of view so we can engage in in dialogue so I suppose for me education is not about an end point it's about the experience that that child has in that moment on that day and that's just as valid for if you're, uh, you know, at the start, so right at the start of your educational journey, if you're there from, you know, in your first year of life, right through to your last year of school. Every day, every moment is, should be purposeful and meaningful. So if we take it from that point of view, uh, then knowing what children think about their education at that point is valid and important. Because if we say your education is meaningful at that, you know, when you're three, then a child's perspective of what they're experiencing at that point in time is really important. Likewise, with children who are six, seven, 12, 14, 16. Obviously, there's different ways that children can communicate, you know, because as you're getting older, you have a greater grasp of language and being able to communicate that. Um, so I think we've got to get clever in how to open the dialogue with children using the languages that they have at hand. Um, and I, I suppose with young children, if they're not feeling that it's a useful um, experience, they'll just walk off, you know, um, disengage. Um, that's more a physical disengagement, but we're also seeing, you know, with older, older students, they're disengaging with education in their own way. And I, I think we've got to get an insight into their perspective of education if we're going to evolve it into a place that's meaningful for them. Um, I was just in a discussion uh, earlier this week and a, a question that came to mind was, well, if children didn't have to go to school or young adults didn't have to go to school, 
would they come to school in the way that it's set up at this point in time? Um, if, we, if we think no, when we've got to think, well, what can we do, you know, that, uh, to change it, that children would get up in the morning or young adults and go, awesome, I am going to school today. Um, get up at our bed and go. Um, and I think to ensure that and to ensure that the policy drivers that people in high levels of decision-making want to achieve, we've got to have all voices of all stakeholders. We've got to have the policy voice, we've got to have parent voice, we've got to have teacher voice, but we've also got to have an element of student, student voice. And for people who say that children don't know what they don't know, I'd also say to those people, you only know about education from what you've experienced. And is that a contemporary way of looking at education? So I think there's, um, you know, adults today who say children don't know, they're not in the education system experiencing that the children and young adults are. So I sort of roundabout, I don't know if I've really answered that question. Sorry, Mike, I've sort of gone off on tangents, but I've hoped that sort of helps. I, I think you answered that question just fine. As a matter of fact, there's a couple <laughs> of knowledge bombs that you dropped in there that I think our listeners are going to really appreciate. <laughs> I fully agree. And I love the fact if we asked our students the whole piece of would they want to come to school? It's a great question. I think we'd all have to ask ourselves that question. But we have one last question for you. Do we not, Mike? Sure. So we asked this question of all of our guests. Yep. Uh, in one or two sentences. Oh, that's a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> so in one or two sentences, if we, uh, how can we change education to make the world a better place? We need to reshift focus from uh, academics to the social, emotional aspects of children and their ability to understand and appreciate others with empathy and compassion and consider how we as human beings can leverage our best by knowing each other to fully become what our potential is and that's to not just be human beings but to be humankind. Thank you for joining us today. Please visit our website at edforbetterworld.com. That's ed, E-D, the number four, betterworld.com for show notes and to learn more about inviting Mike and I to lead a workshop for your teachers. And don't forget to check the other podcast-related goodies. We want to thank Alexandra Harper for being a guest on today's show. Credit for music on the show goes to Midair Machine. Join us next week as we talk with Matt Miller, author of Ditch That Textbook, about ways that you can make learning authentic for your students. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation and that it gave you some new ideas and perspectives. Through education and action, we can create a better world. Until we're together again, continue to dream big. And affect positive change.